The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's Wednesday, July the 26th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today, we wanted to discuss Ireland's most popular political party, Sinn Féin. Uh, riding high in opinion polls in the South and poised to take up the first ministership in the North if the Assembly gets back to business in the autumn, the party has risen from the electoral margins at the start of this century to become the country's most successful political machine. But Sinn Féin, as its own members would freely acknowledge, is different from other parties. It's a movement with its roots in armed conflict and its prime objective of a united Ireland remains in place even if its tactics and its strategy have been transformed along the way. But what sort of an organisation is Sinn Féin now and who is making the big calls these days as the party prepares for a general election that many believe will propel it into power? In a bid to answer that question, uh, the Irish Times has just published a, a major sort of a who's who of the party north and south to all the key Figures. And to discuss that today, we have our political editor, Pat Lee and our northern editor, Freya McClements. Hello to you both. Hi, Hugh. Hello. So, Pat, I don't recall a project of this sort being undertaken for Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. So why do this and why do it now with Sinn Féin? Well, that's not to say that we won't uh, do something similar uh, for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael um, uh, in the period between now and the next election. We, we, we may very well do. But why are we doing it about Sinn Féin now? Well, as you mentioned in your introduction... Sinn Féin are in a unique position uh, at the moment. They're poised to take the First Minister's office if the power-sharing uh, institutions ever get up and running again in uh, instalment. There's going to be a push to do that in the autumn as to how successful it is. We'll have to wait and see. And simultaneously, Mary Lou MacDonald is the, you know, nailed-on hot favourite to be the leader of the largest party in the Dáil after the next election, which, as we know, must take place before March 2025 and may well take place uh, next year. Now, whether that will enable her to lead the next government depends, I think, on whether she can find 
uh, a willing partner. And in turn, that depends on a number of factors that we've discussed here before, and I'm sure we will discuss again. But against that background of the possibility of Sinn Féin being in power north uh, and south simultaneously within the medium-term future, there's also the fact that we know generally, I think, less about them than we do about uh, the other parties. We we don't know all that much about their decision-making processes. We don't know that much about the people who make them. We don't know about the, the balance between the two wings of the party, north and south, and a point that a lot of people, some of them their political opponents, but others, independent commentators, bring up is that we don't know about the role that unelected backroom people play in the party, which is much greater, I think, than uh, the role played by these people in, uh, in, in other parties. And the party freely admits that uh, itself, uh, uh, as we wrote uh, in the piece. So with that in mind... Over the past number of weeks, we have been trying to figure out who's who in the party, winnowing down the lists of the national executive, the people in Stormont, the party elders and the front bench and trying to figure out who it is that really matters in the decision-making process. And the list that we came up with uh, last, which we published last Saturday um, is is the best stab we can make at that at the moment. One of the things that strikes me about this, Freya, is that modern Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin in 2023, um, its its primary focus, I think it's fair to say, is on the, the coming electoral contest, as Pat says, in the South and seeking to become the largest party in the Dáil and perhaps need a, um, need a government. But the... Um, I'm not sure if you'd say the roots of the party, but the his, you know the history of the party lies more in the north. It was a significant political force north of the border long before that really started to become the case in the south. So in a way, the template was laid in Northern Ireland, and and you know you and other uh, political journalists in the north would in a way have had more familiarity of 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 dealing with the party and seeing how it works. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that that's the same for for voters as well. I mean, I mean, if we think of sort of where Sinn Féin's recent success has, has come out of. And I say recent success, I'm talking about it, its recent electoral success in, in the north at, at assembly level and, and local council level, where it's the, the largest party at both levels. Um, but if we think of where, where that's come out of in terms of its success electorally and, and, and what it's done to build that up really from sort of the period of, of the hunger strikes on. And I think what I would also add to that is that they are, as well as being more familiar to sort of people, you know, journalists like us and people like that in the North, they're also much more familiar to the electorate. So there's certainly a substantial section of voters in the North who have been much more familiar with voting for, for Sinn Féin over a longer period of time. So so when, when we look at these kind of breakthrough historic election victories that we're seeing now and the fact, that, and Pat alluded to this, that um, Michelle O'Neill obviously should be First Minister actually at this point if the Assembly was sitting, that this is the culmination of a good 40 years really of building that up. And, and I think that 
familiarity plays a part, certainly, um, in, I think, the way that Sinn Féin is regarded slightly differently in, in the North and some of the debates sometimes that happen in, in the South um, around Sinn Féin being in, in government. They're different in, in the North and obviously that's that's um, in part due to the different history and, and the troubles, but certainly there, there is that that greater familiarity with Sinn Féin up here with its with, with its politicians, with the way it operates, but, uh, but also the fact that it, it is a very successful electoral force. I mean, I mean certainly the most successful uh, of recent times. One of the things about that that pattern, one of the one of the points which which is made in this uh, in this piece is that one of the ways in which Sinn Féin differs, perhaps, from other political parties, north and north and south, is that there is a different balance at play inside the party between the relative power and role and function of elected representatives, members of the Dáil or of the or of the Northern Assembly, on the one hand, and what are described as activists in in Sinn Féin's terms. There is a there's a very large cohort of people who've never been elected, but who have a lot of sway within the party. Now, for the likes of you, you know, and other people in in the political correspondent business, I suppose you're always used to dealing with some of these faceless backroom people in other parties. But is it fair to say they're they're more important within Sinn Féin than they are in the other parties? I think that's very much the case. And that's one of the motivations that we had in doing this uh, doing this piece. And of course, we, we write not for our fellow political correspondents or for the political bubble. We write for our readers, you know. And... Uh, uh, and it, it is true to say, I think, that that balance is very is very different in Sinn Féin. And, and the party is kind of quite open um, uh, about this. I mean, it was a couple of years ago that Des Macken, who's the party's finance uh, chief, told uh, our, our colleague Colm Keena that he said they, they, they didn't want a parliamentary party running the organisation. They want to stay a party of activists. He said it's a totally different model. There's nothing mysterious about it. And if you talk to TDs and people involved in uh, the party in Leinster House, they'll say exactly the same thing. And a lot of this came from Gerry Adams' long leadership of the party, particularly in the latter uh, part of it. And, you know, I'm sure we could spend several podcasts discussing the, the life and career of, of Gerry Adams. But when, when Adams came south, election of 2011. That was a signal that the party's focus was moving south, that its primary focus was on taking power in uh, in Dublin. And that was a very significant move, I think, um, for the party. But they brought the model that they had operated in the north to the south. And you talk to TDs and they would say that Adams very much, you know, used, would say to people, you know, that you know, the important people are not necessarily the the elected people. There's a whole bunch of what the party called activists. And some of these are former IRA men. Some of them uh, have been on an exclusively, uh, an, an exclusively political track uh, throughout, uh, throughout their lives. But what Adams would say is that they wanted the smartest people in, uh, in the room, the best activists. And elected people then don't necessarily have the sort of primacy that they do in, uh, in, in other parties. And they would say people who work, uh, you know, with these, with these backroom people. And I guess, you know, in the party more broadly, and we see this in the elevation of Mary Lou MacDonald, first deputy leader, then to, to leader, there's a general, generational shift underway uh, in the party. And just as we have seen that happen amongst the elected representatives, so we are seeing it happen amongst the non-elected activists that hold sway. But there are still some of them who command great respect. They have seniority within the organisation and they are consulted and involved in many of the major decisions that, uh, that, 
uh, that the party will make. And there's a number of, of, you know, there's a number of instances of evidence for that we could cite. Yeah, and from a Northern perspective on that, um, Freya, I think it's fair to say that Jerry Kelly is the only really significant frontline elected politician who's still in place, who has his roots in in armed struggle and, you know, went to, you know, was was, was imprisoned and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But otherwise, they've tended to move on. But is that the case with the backroom staff? Are there still, uh, you know, the cliche still floats around that there are hard men sitting around a kitchen table somewhere in West, in West Belfast. Yeah, smoky discussing... rooms, I think, is usually thrown <laughs> yes. in there, isn't it? D- yeah. I- indeed. Is that still the case or is there a generational shift? Are they just, you know, they must be all in their, getting into their 70s by now, those men, those hard men. Yeah, I mean, I think Pat's absolutely right in terms of when he talks about that generational shift and what, what's taking place. And I think actually a really good way to look at at it is to look at some of the figures that, that we did focus on in the piece on Saturday. And, and absolutely, I mean, people like Jerry Kelly. Jerry Kelly is 70 now. This is expected to be his, his last term as an MLA. And he, he's one of very few still left of, of that age and of that vintage who, who are elected. And, and if we kind of track back a little bit, we, we've seen how in recent years Sinn Féin in the North, they've deliberately um, brought forward younger candidates and they've deliberately brought forward female candidates. So a real kind of effort to change the party in terms of it, its elected representatives and, and also the, the appearance of those elected representatives. When you see sort of photographs of Sinn Féin MLAs all, all grouped together now, it's remarkable how many, how many of them are women and how many of them are younger women. And then in, in terms of the, 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 the backroom staff, if you like, I mean, again, we are seeing that generational shift. I mean, somebody who was really high profile in that was, was Bobby Story, of course, and there was all the, the furore and, and the row and the controversy around around um, the attendance of, of Mary Lou MacDonald and, and other senior Sinn Féin members at, at his funeral. But it, if you like, you could look at that as a turning point, as a passing of, of the old guard. You know, the sort of the, the trappings that we had around that are the sort of thing that you will expect to see less and less. So there are still people, I mean, people again who we've profiled, you know, Martin Lynch, Spike Murray, Ted Howell, you know, people who would have been senior I- IRA men at one stage, now senior advisors now, now figure sort of still guiding the party. But but at the end of the day, it will also just, it comes down to time um, and it will come down to age. And inevitably, as we go through the next 10 years, we're going to see those kind of figures become uh, just simply not be there anymore. And, and I'm thinking of it again in terms of that changing of the guard. I mean, I'm thinking of some, some of the people, and this is another individual that we profiled, Stephen McGlade, um, chief advisor, confidant to O'Neill, you know, really intelligent, really smart. You always see him. If Michelle O'Neill is there, he is there or thereabouts. You know, this is somebody who came, you know, came through Queen's, you know, worked outside the party before getting a job within it. You know, this is the kind of individual that you would expect to see more of. Is there any truth at all? There's a critique uh, of, of what you've just described, which has been rejected by the party as, as misogynist, which is that some of the, the figures that you've mentioned there, all of the men um, who are described as advisors, um, that they do more than advise, that in some cases it's, it's alleged that they, that they might instruct. You know, there are a couple of instances um, cited in the article, one where, where Mary Lou MacDonald did a, did a U-turn on the question of a referendum in the space of 24 hours, and it was widely suggested that she had been instructed to do so. And another one is uh, an incident that happened during the Cash for Ash scandal when Marcino Mwilor, who's a, uh, a senior elected figure in Sinn Féin in the North, um, was reported to have 
sought direction on what his policy should be. Um, are those signs of, uh, you know, that, that, that there's more than advising going on here? Yeah, I think those are two really interesting examples, particularly the one around the cash for ash scandal, because we, we had a really clear example in that, a really clear uh, example laid out in, in the documentations of when Martina Muller, who was then the, the Stormont finance minister, rather than taking a, a decision around the scheme, went and asked one of these unelected background, backroom figures in, in the party, uh, essentially for his, his approval around the decision. I mean, I guess... You can argue that that the the gap between advice and influence sometimes um can be quite narrow. The implication certainly again in that uh, that example with um, Mary Lou Macdonald um was that somebody had had intervened, um and and she she had to do a U turn. I mean I think this in some way kind of sheds light on one of the tensions within the party, and I think again this will change as we go through the years. It won't be as difficult a pressure point 10 years from now, but it is that tension sometimes between trying to keep what might be termed the the old guard, and I don't just mean in terms of party structures, I'm just thinking of, of, of voters, that old guard to keep them on board, but also to kind of keep this this new modern forward-facing party that you see using language certainly in the north around you know working for all and making politics work and 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 these kind of messages i just want to jump in there because i i think this is important i mean one of the things about covering politics is that there's always a there's the bit that you see in public what politicians say in their public statements and so forth and what they and what they do and then there's a whole load of stuff that that you don't see that goes on behind the scenes and we've always tried to get at that to get a more authentic story of what is going on uh, uh, with with government and with uh, politicians uh, more broadly and in Sinn Féin it's it's much harder to see the stuff that's going on behind the scenes uh, than it is with the current uh, government or with the parties uh, that make it up. And Why? that's because Why? of, it's because of the culture of discipline within, uh, within Sinn Féin, which, uh, you know, I guess it's hardly a huge leap to say that that is a, a remnant of the time when the party was dedicated to overthrowing the state and the agents of the state were policing, uh, were policing the party aggressively and, uh, and you know, in, in some cases, draconian, in draconian fashion. But, um, but whatever the background uh, for it, there's this culture of discipline in, in, in Sinn Féin. It's much harder to see behind the public facade of what's going on. In the instance of the cash for ash thing, because it was subject of an inquiry that had powers of discovery, we were able to see what was going on in this respect between Sinn Féin ministers, in this case, uh, in, in, uh, in this case, Martina Mwilor was the finance minister, and uh, senior Sinn Féin figures who held no role in the administration, but were obviously very senior party figures in um, uh, in, in Sinn Féin. And on this occasion, where uh, Omilor had been advised that the you know big changes had to be made to shut down the, the the scheme or to limit its exposure, he'd been advised by his officials, been agreed by the assembly, and to press the button on this, he needed to make a ministerial decision. And before he made that ministerial decision, he sent emails to senior Republicans, one of whom was Ted Howell, who was a very senior IRA figure for many years and uh, and very close confidant of um uh, of Jerry Adams and he asked him was it okay to proceed with uh, with 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 that decision and Sam McBride who wrote the book burned and we we've had on here to discuss this uh, in 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 the past he wrote in, in in the book i think it's worth 
It's worth quoting. He says, In an insight into where real power lay within Sinn Féin, the minister did not seem able to take the decision based on the advice of his civil servants and his own party-appointed special advisor. Here was the finance minister, one of Stormont's most powerful, democratically accountable figures, asking an unelected and entirely unseen Republican with long links to the IRA whether he was content for the minister to take a complex decision worth hundreds of millions of pounds even after the legislation had been agreed by the legislature. And I think that's a very serious question that Sinn Féin hasn't really answered. And what people in the South are entitled to ask is if Sinn Féin ministers are in a government in the South, will they be running decisions past senior Republicans in the way that Marcino Millor, according to the documentary evidence, did with this decision to Ted Howell? And I think that's a reasonable question to ask. So that's a question which people in your position and do jobs like yours, Freya, have had to work with for, for years, if, if not decades. Is it sort of common currency among your colleagues who cover Northern Irish politics that, that this is the way that Sinn Féin works, that, that as Pat says, the Cash for Ash inquiry lifted the veil on the operations of the party in a way that hasn't happened otherwise? Yeah, and I think, I mean, Sam did excellent work in terms of covering that scandal and, and really drawing out points like that in terms of just why why this was so significant. You know, this wasn't just about sort of one botch scheme. You know, this certainly in, in regard to Sinn Féin really shed a spotlight that we hadn't had before in, in terms of those in, internal workings and, and that, that question, as Pat says, in terms of the, the discipline and in terms of just where the decision-making um, process lies ha- hasn't been f- fully answered. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I suppose in, in terms of your specific question around are people used to this and have people been dealing with this? I mean, I mean, absolutely. And and I suppose what, what I would add, add to that is that um, the context in the North is different. And, I, you know, except I'm uh, aware of the risk of sort of um, sitting here repeating the mantra that, you know, that the, the North is, is different. But in, in terms of the way Northern Ireland is governed, I mean, at the minute, obviously, we don't have an assembly or an executive. But when Assuming that gets up and running at some stage, there'll be a mandatory coalition between four parties. So it's a lot more, you know, you don't simply have one party or a coalition of parties who are in charge who make decisions and then take those through. It's more about compromise. It's more about deal making. Um, it's certainly more about horse trading behind the, the scenes. And, and and that makes, from from our point of view, in terms of getting transparency about decision-making processes, but also the relationships between parties, um, it can make that that much, much harder. So it, it, it's actually, a, it's perhaps a particularly undemocratic system up there, because on the other side of the coin in, in Belfast, of course, we've seen the, the overweening influence of SPADs in the DUP, and yep. so there's, you know, it's, yep. it's, it's, these are not necessarily questions that are that are peculiar to Sinn Féin alone, but part of the yep. thing that, that, that is the purpose of this discussion and of this exercise, it seems to me, is the question is, is this mm-hmm. the way in which Sinn Fein is actually run, and what implications might that have uh, if it were to be uh, to be in power in Dublin? Would the same thing occur? Would the phone be lifted to Ted Howells or whoever else it is in Belfast before a decision is I made? I think that's a reasonable question uh, to ask, particularly as Sinn Fein will be in the next election, probably, you know, for the first time, real contenders to lead the next government. We know that they gained in the last election that they gained the party gained the largest share of the vote, if not the largest number of, uh, of TDs. All the polls would suggest uh, that it will far outstrip its rivals in terms of share of the vote and in the numbers of TDs. Now, that doesn't give it an automatic right to govern. It's got a 
put together uh, a dull majority, presumably through uh, a coalition. But these are, I think, in the light of what we have discovered um, through the RHI, the Cash for Ash uh, inquiry. In this instance, at least, these are reasonable questions that Sinn Féin, I think, will have to answer. Now, we should say that the party has been asked these uh, questions before, and Mary Lou McDonald says Sinn Féin ministers will be constitutionally accountable to uh, the Dáil like, uh, like any other uh, like any other ministers. But I think in the light of the evidence that we've seen how Sinn Féin has worked in the North, in this instance at least, and there are other instances, I suppose, that we could talk about as well, the party's own internal management uh, in Derry, um, is certainly yeah, actually, something that, actually, that Freya could talk good about. Good point. Maybe Freya, you could, you could tell us what happened in Derry. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this was, was really interesting in, in terms of some of what we've been discussing about generational shifts and generational change, but also just the, the internal discipline of Sinn Féin. It's really interesting. This was... Sinn Féin had had a, had a couple of really bad election results in Derry and in Foyle, in the Foyle constituency, and this, this was not happening elsewhere. So there was an investigation, an external invest, investigation, so not run by the party lo- locally in Derry. And the outcome of this was that the two sitting MLAs, and w- one of whom was Martina Anderson, I mean, a, a senior figure in the party, um, former IRA prisoner, um, former MEP, the decision was that she needed to go, that, that both... MLAs needed to be removed and needed to be replaced if, if the party was going to poll the way they felt it, it they should have been polling in, in foil um, and um, the way that, that Sinn Féin works and this is, again is back to the discipline you know the, the, the idea is that you know you, you serve as an MLA or you serve in, in whatever role you're in but at, at some stage there will be a tap on the shoulder you know the party thanks you for your service it's time to move on and you're expected to kind of go quietly. Martina Anderson in particular didn't go quietly. I mean, she, she felt very aggrieved about that and, and, and made clear um, in terms of what she she felt that she had done for the party and had, had given to the party. But it's interesting in, in terms of the discipline, but also the, the strategic thinking that there was a decision made, there, were, there was a report done and and depending on who you talk to, the decision was made in Belfast or in, in Dublin. Um, and um, senior party figures were, were dispatched to explain that, that this was what, what was going to happen. Um, and again, in terms of that generational shift, who were the new MLAs? There was a, a woman and a, a young man in, in, in his 20s who, off the top of my head, cer- certainly both were elected easily um, in the last assembly election. So... Certainly, um, Sinn Féin would would feel that the, the party would feel overall that this was the right decision and that they they have been vindicated electorally. Um, but again, yeah, just just on underlines um, the, the the discipline. Um, I, I suppose if, if you like. But I think it also underlines something else: is that the party's views its interests as as primary. Yeah, in as that, paramount. You know, the yeah. voters that elected yeah. these people, whatever you think of them, the voters had elected them. But a decision in party headquarters takes them out and somebody else. I'm sure there's in. other political parties that look on with envy at some of this kind mm. of internal well, discipline at times. Every single one of them, <laughs> I, 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 I can assure you. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a desirable way to operate in a, what is, you know, an open, transparent, democratic state. Listen, we should say we should say as well, we're going to take a break now, but just to say, you know, these the, the, these extensive pen portraits of all the significant figures in Shane also include many elected politicians and many of them are impressive. And I think there's some generational changes going on there as well. We're going to discuss that just after this break, just to remind you that um, if you haven't done so already, please do subscribe to irishtimes.com. Uh, it does what it says in the tin. Go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe. I'll be back after this. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Andrew, very welcome back. Uh, Pat and Freya are still here. Yeah, Freya, Freya, I don't want anybody coming to this subject cold to get the impression that, that Sinn Féin, particularly in the North where, where you're covering it as a party, without uh, people of talent, ingenuity and skill on the elected side as well. Michelle O'Neill, it seems to me, has performed very well. There's an impressive new generation of younger elected politicians um, rising to the top there now as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to, to make the point as well that, you know, for, for all the issues that we've been discussing in terms of things like who makes the decision, I mean, for many, many Sinn Féin voters, or for, for all the many people who vote for Sinn Féin, I should say, they, they have no issue with this. Um, and they have brought Sinn Féin to the, the largest party um, in, in the North, the first time that uh, a nationalist party ha- has held this position. So, I mean, absolutely a historic uh, milestone. Um, so again, I think that um, shed some light on, on um, the way things are regarded um, differently between North and South. But I think, I mean, in in terms of some of the Sinn Féin figures that we profiled, I mean, Michelle O'Neill, obviously, the figurehead, if you like, at the top of this success and and the person who should be the the, the First Minister of Northern Ireland um, right now should have held that role for for more than a year were it not for the DUP boycott. And um, I mean, I think one of the things about her is that, that you can really see how she has grown into that role that, that this role of sort of first minister in, in waiting or, or or first minister designate um and um her focus very much is and the, the language very much used around her is about this, this idea that there will be a first minister for all that it's about getting the assembly up and running that it's about working families it's about the health service you don't see her talking very much about things like united ireland it's about these kind of issues with broad appeal that, that can appeal uh, to everybody and i think the other thing that has, has really kind of um stood out for her is just her, her personality i mean she has this warm personality and she has this way of connecting with people and and, and things like um her her meeting with um with King Charles following the death of of the Queen last year and this was much talked about not just the way she kind of passed on her condolences but this double-handed handshake that looked and, and felt genuine and you contrasted that with the sort of the rather awkward sort of manoeuvrings of of, of of Jeffrey Donaldson and that was something that that said a lot both in terms of of, of reconciliation um in Northern Ireland and and her following through on that um, pledge of that soundbite to be a, fir- a first minister for all, but also j- just the way in which her, her kind of personality is coming through. Um, so, so M- Michelle O'Neill. I mean, some of the other people we we profiled um, in terms of up and coming. Um, absolutely, a rising star, Kiva Archibald, um, who is an MLA in in East Derry. Absolutely viewed as a future finance or economy minister. Really intelligent. I mean, sort of widely regarded as really, really intelligent. She's got a PhD in molecular microbiology from Queen's. I don't even really know what that is. Um, but um, 
Uh, I could explain it, but it would take too long. Yeah, 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 exactly. But Kiva Archibald knows what it is. Um, and uh, yeah, and from from a, a Sinn Féin family, um, but also ha- has this, um, you know, real real technical background. You know, she she know, know, knows knows her figures. Um, you know, can can work work kind of really well with that, which is what you would like, obviously, um, in a future finance or or economy uh, minister, and very close to Michelle O'Neill as well. So she's somebody that's certainly being kind of tipped for those key roles. Uh, Jerry Kelly, we've talked about. John Finucane has definitely a rising star, isn't he? Absolutely. Um, and again, I mean, John Finucane. Um, many people listening, most people, I would imagine, will will know that he is he's the the son of um, the murdered Belfast solicitor Pat Finucane. Um He's had an absolutely meteoric rise. He was elected to Belfast City Council uh, May twenty nineteen. Within weeks, he became Lord Mayor, and then he unseated um, Nigel Dodds, DUP. Um, then the DUP uh, vice president uh, or deputy leader uh, Nigel Dodds in in North Belfast the first time there'd been a nationalist uh, MP there um and again when when you look at um the the posters I'm not too sure if it's the same size of the of the border but when when you look at sort of election posters or sort of banners from Sinn Féin that that are often displayed up here John Finucane is always one of the figures who's on that ba- banner. It tends to be Mary Lou MacDonald, Michelle O'Neill. John Finucane will 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 be there. Absolutely, Pierce Doherty there. But he, he he's he's one of he's he's one one of the 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 key the key figures. Connor Murphy, um, the other individual who who we who we haven't haven't touched on. So yeah, the, these would be some some of the some of the the key figures uh, and a, and a, a mix there um, between. If you like the old guard and this newer blood, um, that, yeah, that no, it's quite it's, it's quite an impressive mix, and it's not it's not unlike um, what's going on in the south. You know, it's it's always a challenge. It seems to me for a rising opposition party, Pat, to kind of credibly put forward its front bench spokesmen. Uh, you know, who've never actually had the trapping of power as as um, as people who you can see as ministers in the in the next administration. But Sinn Féin's done a pretty good job of that over the particularly over the last couple of years. It seems. Yeah, I think the strategic goal for Sinn Féin at the you know, once it settled into opposition in uh, in the Dáil after the last election was to be seen as a government in waiting by the time of the next uh, election. And, and so, you know, its front bench team, Ono Brin, has been obviously very prominent in housing, Pierce Doherty in finance, David Cullinan in... Uh, in health, uh, Louise O'Reilly. Uh, I mean, th- these people are, are not just very obviously on top of their briefs, but you'll hear them saying things like, you know, if Sinn Féin were in government or in a Sinn Féin government all the time. And they suddenly started saying that about about two years ago or so. Remember, I think we've talked about it here uh, uh, here before. And, uh, and that is, you know, obviously a preparation for uh, for contesting the next election in a different way than Sinn Féin have previously conte- contested elections, contesting elections as a viable viable leaders of an alternative government, and that is that is undoubtedly the political strategy. And in terms of crafting that message, whether it be on current affairs programs or in podcasts or indeed in kind of making, sending messages out across social media where it seems to me that so, that Sinn Féin absolutely just whips all the other political parties, you know, out, out, out yeah. of sight in terms of, <laughs> in terms of its profile and, and uh, the, 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 how loud its voice is on social media. Who's, who's crafting, driving, shaping all of that? 
Yeah, there's a whole bunch of people in the background, some of which we uh, some of which we referred to in the piece uh, last week. Um, obviously, but there's the front benchers are uh, are involved, but you know also people like Brian Tumulty, who's an election strategist in both uh, both jurisdictions on uh, on the island. Uh, People like Miriam Murphy, she's the policy core national director of policy. Jonathan O'Brien, a former TD, is very involved in preparing candidates for the next uh, uh, for the next election. And Joe Lynch, the head of press in um, in uh, in Leinster House. And um, although I think I, I think there's a there's a tightrope for the party now. So far, I think it's doing reasonably well in it but it'll become more difficult as the election uh, as the election approaches and that is to to balance the party's appeal as offering change the party of change and you know change is you know the go-to slogan of every politician going into every election they promise uh, promising change and Sinn Féin really caught that wave of a desire for change in the na- in the last election we lost count of the amount of times in a single interview that Mary Lou Macdonald would talk about you know time for a change and that I think will be the party's uh, will be very much uh, you know the party's message at the next election uh, as well but at the same time it also wants to reassure voters that the things that they like such as a very strong economy, full employment, rising incomes, political and economic stability, that those sort of things won't change. And, you know, Sinn Féin has been talking to big business, been talking to American multinationals, been talking to, uh, yeah, been talking to banks, stockbrokers, all these things, you know, telling them that, you know, they are not going to completely remake our economic system. They're not they going to nationalise Facebook. The, they're not going to nationalise Facebook. There was a time mm. when Jerry Adams used to talk about, you know, let the, you know, let the, we nationalise the banks and uh, let the multinationals pay their taxes or bugger off to where they, uh, where they came from. That is not what Sinn Féin is going to do in government. So it is walking this kind of communications tightrope in, in, in a way between promising change but not a change that you mightn't like. And that will become kind of a difficult... Uh, a, a, a difficult message to to direct and segment towards different parts of the electorate. The other thing it will need to do, and this is following up on on um, on what we were saying about Derry, is it's got some difficult decisions to make to maximise seat returns from whatever vote it achieves in the next election. It famously got this terribly wrong last time because it panicked after the, uh, having a terrible local election and it actually withdrew candidates uh, from consideration who almost certainly would have been elected to the doll. So it's going to have to both be very astute about the numbers and probably quite ruthless about the choice of candidates as well. Yeah, but you know what? I think that is much less of a problem for for Sinn Féin than it is with other parties, given the party's culture of uh, of discipline. I've no doubt there'll be some local rows, but um, yeah, I was Sinn Féin left seats behind it the last time. I mean, it had two candidate, or two two quotas in. Uh, in a couple of Dublin constituencies in Dublin Central, Dublin Northeast, it had two quotas in in Waterford. In all those places, they will run two or three candidates uh, uh, the next time. They'd be mad not to. Now, sitting TDs, we know, 
tend not to be wildly enthusiastic about having running mates imposed on them by headquarters, but that's what's going to happen. And really, you know, if you are... If you're David Cullinan in Waterford sitting on two quotes, he's got nearly 40% of the vote in the last election. You can't really viably argue, nor would he, I think, that um, that he shouldn't have a candidate, uh, a running mate uh, imposed uh, imposed upon him. In other places, might be more marginal, and the sitting candidates or sitting TDs won't be won't be wild about it. But they'll suck it up. They'll have to. That's the way the party operates. What's the electoral strategy for the future in Sinn Fein in in Northern Ireland for you? I mean, I know it's it's you know it has been establishing itself as by far the dominant party of the two main parties of of nationalism, and presumably it can aim to continue that and ultimately to almost, you know, extinguish the SDLP. It seems to be the direction in which the SDLP is going at the moment. But actually, the overall the overall nationalist vote um, is actually pretty stable. Uh, it hasn't changed that much if you combine the vote of the, of, of the two parties. Has it? Is it just is it steady as she goes in Northern Ireland? Yeah, I mean, it's it's keep, keep building. Um, I, I think, I mean, I mean one, one of the things that, that's really interesting is that, and, you know, and I've written about this before, we've kind of got used to, with the last couple of elections to Sinn Féin having these, these really good elections, actually, the, these historic elections. And, and, and what's really noticeable is that literally the, the day after they will start planning for the next one. And it, it, it's always about... It's always about building for the for for what's next for for the next gain. Um and places like um Coleraine um in 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 the up on the north the north coast in County Derry, you know they 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 took their first seat at, at their first council seat in Coleraine ever um in the last local election, and that's part of, that that is all part of a strategy in that particular constituency to build to build up their MLAs to build up their their, their rep- representation. Um, so and, and I'm sorry, is that at the expense of the SDLP or is that capitalising on demographic change or what's going on? It's a mix of things. Both those things are in the mix, certainly. Um, I mean, not to kind of focus on that constituency too too much, but that that would have been a constituency once that that, that would have had a had a large unionist majority. Um, and we, we've we've seen you know demographic change, population shift. We, we've seen that breakdown. We've also seen um, the we've also seen uh, the decline of, of of the SDLP. We've also seen one of the things that's now in play in that constituency has been the rise of the Alliance Party. So there, there, there's there's an awful lot of things going on. Um, but I suppose the, the 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 general I suppose the general point it, it is about. The extent to which Sinn Féin is always planning, they're planning for for the next election and the next election and the next next election. Lisburn North was another one of, one of those um, areas in that last council election where they will then be looking to, to build, and it's about building increment incremental gains. You know, you you build your representation in an area, you build your success, you build your activists, and then you're in with a shot with an, an MLA seat or another MLA seat, and and the the next the next electoral. Um, Test is going to be a Westminster election. Um, Sinn Féin will be looking for the set. They have have the hat trick. They have have two out of three in terms of uh, not just the largest party, but the largest party overall um, at assembly and and local uh, election level. And I know I keep sort of banging on about that, but it it really is significant, particularly when you look at you know the history of of, of Northern Ireland and and how how it was how it was was created. No, it's ab- um, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely so historic. the numbers are eight eight seven. Um, Sinn Féin has seven MPs at the minute. The DUP has has eight. There's two two SDLP, one one Alliance. Um, they will absolutely um, be looking um, to at least pull pull level or, or overtake them. 
Yeah, and, and, and Pat, I want to ask you about that first. But first, I want to ask you one other question which struck me when I was reading this, uh, first of all. I think if I was reading a similar series of pen portraits of, of any other political party, I would expect, you know, at some point along the way to be told that somebody's on this wing of the party and somebody's on that wing of the party, somebody's a bit more hardline on this, somebody's a bit more... And there is none of that whatsoever. There is no sense of factions, divisions, left-right divides, you know, ultra-green, less green. There's none of that at all. Is that not very telling? Yeah, it is. It goes back to that, that culture of discipline. Now, there have been some internal elections in recent years which have, uh, which have, raised, uh, which have raised eyebrows. But, you know, ultimately, Gerry Adams was leader of the party for, what, 33 years. Nobody challenged him. Then Mary Lou MacDonald became leader of the party. Nobody challenged her. There was, so there hasn't been a leadership election since the 1970s? If then, if even, yeah, um, uh, and and that that culture of discipline, as we discussed, is a great kind of tactical advantage for uh, for the party. Ultimately, though, you would expect it to loosen as the party becomes more like the society that it springs from and seeks to serve. Parties at least successful democratic parties can't be completely different from uh, from their voters. And uh, and so I think, you know, that while we're probably a long way from that sort of factionalism within, uh, within Sinn Féin and certainly the entertaining splits that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have regularly served up to political correspondents since time immemorial, I think we're, we're a long way from that. But I think, say, if you went back to, you know, the period when De Valera was leader of Fianna Fáil, he wasn't regularly challenged either. Neither was, neither was La Masse. So, uh, so because it's a national movement, quote-unquote, rather than a political party. That's the explanation for this. Ah, it's a political party. It's a, look, you know, we're all in a stage of transition. Uh, uh, I suppose Fianna Fáil now is very different to the Fianna Fáil of 20 years ago, but, you know, Sinn Féin is really different to the party of, uh, of, of 20 years ago. This was a party that was, you know, dedicated to, you know, an armed campaign to, you know, expel the British presence from, from Northern Ireland. So, you know, that, that, that's a pretty big U-turn to make. Uh, I think, and uh, and the party will go on uh, changing. But for now, at this point in time, when it has the political popularity of uh, of a large party, a sense of being the coming thing in Irish politics, a wave of support, especially amongst younger voters, you know, it's 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 quite the cocktail, really. So as Freya referred to there, next year there'll be a Westminster election. Um, who knows? Probably, possibly towards the end of the year. There'll quite possibly be an Irish general election, again, quite possibly towards the end of the year. There will be European elections and, and local elections in the in the South. It's a it's a big, big year. It's a big year and it's a really important year for, you know, consolidating in terms of elected representatives the gains that Sinn Féin has made in the opinion polls since the last election. It had a very bad local 
and European elections in 2019. So we can expect very big gains for Sinn Féin in the local and European elections, which we know will take place the end of May, start of June of next year. So that really will be the target for the party now, is to put elected representatives all over the country, in every council in the country, and to build the base for uh, for the election for the general election that will come either either in 2025 or later next year. So yeah, is it I well think. placed to achieve its objectives? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, they're you know like everybody else, they're on search for candidates uh, at the moment. But I would say that you will see a huge campaign by uh, by Sinn Fein on the ground. You will see an awful lot of Sinn Fein candidates elected. Um, and big gains. I, I, you know, I think even looking at it now, a long way away from the election, I'd be very surprised if we're not sitting here next June in our results special and we're not saying that, you know, big story here is gains for Sinn Féin. Big gains for Sinn Féin. So we'd, we'd, uh, we will definitely be covering that, as Pat says. We'll definitely be here in the studio covering that, maybe on a daily podcast, who knows? Oh, uh, uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment. No daily podcast right now, but thanks very much to Pat and to, to Freya for, for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Our engineer is JJ Vernon. We will be back very soon indeed. Until then, thank you very much for listening.